Chapter 12, Part 1 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Durrett. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Bury, Chapter 12, Part 1. The Spartan Supremacy and the Persian War. Sparta had achieved the task which she had been pressed to undertake, and had undertaken somewhat reluctantly the destruction of the Athenian Empire. It was a task which, though not imposed by the unanimous voice of Greece, appealed to a most deeply seated sentiment of the Greeks, their love of political independence. The Athenian Empire had been an outrage on that sentiment, and apart from all calculations of particular interest, the humiliation of the great offender must have been regarded even by those who were not her enemies, with an involuntary satisfaction. The avowed aim of Sparta throughout has been to restore their liberty to those states which had been enslaved by Athens and protect the liberty of those whom her ambition threatened. Now that this object was accomplished as fully as could be desired, it would have been correct for Sparta to retire into her old position, leaving the cities which had belonged to the Athenian Empire to arrange their own affairs if her deeds were to be in accordance with her profession. The alternative course for a state in the position of Sparta was to enter frankly upon the Athenian inheritance and pursue the aims and policy of Athens, as an imperial power. Other states might have adopted this course with advantage both to themselves and Greece. For Sparta it was impossible. And so, when Sparta, unable from the nature of her institutions and the character of her genius to tread in the footsteps of her fallen rival, nevertheless resolved to take under her own dominion the cities which had gone forth to deliver from all dominion, she not only cynically set aside her high moral professions, but entered on a path of ambition which led to calamity for herself and distress for Greece. The main feature of Greek history for the thirty years after Agos Postomy is Sparta's pursuit of a policy of aggrandizement beyond the Peloponnesus. The opposition which this policy calls forth leads both to the revival of Athens as a great power and to the rise of Thebes. In the end, Sparta is forced to retire into the purely Peloponnesian position for which her institutions fitted her. In the making of those institutions an activity beyond the Peloponnesus had not been contemplated, 
and they were too rigid to be adapted to the enlarged sphere of an Aegean dominion. Nothing short of a complete revolution in the Spartan state could have rendered her essay in empire a success, but the narrow Spartan system was too firmly based in the narrow Spartan character to suffer such a revolution. We may wonder how far the general who had placed his country in the position of arbitress of Greece appreciated the difficulty of reconciling the political character of Lacedaemon with the role of an imperial city. Unspartan as he was in many respects, Lysander had possibly more enlightened views as to the administration of an empire than his countrymen. A story is told that when Calibius the Spartan, Harmost of Athens, was knocked down by a young athlete whom he had insulted and appealed to Lysander, he was told that he did not know how to govern freemen. To deal with freemen abroad was what the average Spartan could not do, and it was such men as Calibius that Lysander had to use for the establishment of the empire which he had resolved to found. In each of the cities which had passed from Athenian into Spartan control, a government of members was set up and its authority was maintained by a Lacedaemonian Harmost with a Lacedaemonian garrison. The cities were thus given over to a twofold oppression. The foreign governors were rapacious and were practically free from home control, the native oligarchies were generally tyrannical and got rid of their political opponents by judicial murders, and both Descartes and Harmos played into each other's hands. Lysander exercised with a high hand and without far-sightedness the dictatorship which was his for the time and might at any hour be taken from him. He was solely concerned to impose a firm military despotism on the states which had been rescued from the Athenian confederacy. It is obvious that the Athenian and Spartan empires had little in common. They were, first of all, sharply contrasted through the fact that the Spartan policy was justified by no public object like that to which the confederacy owed its origin, and this contrast was all the more flagrant considering that after the battle Agispotami there was the same demand for a pan-Hellenic confederacy with the object of protecting the Asiatic Greeks from Persia as they had been after the battle of Mycale. But so far from contracting her supremacy with such an object, Sparta had abandoned the Asiatic Greeks to the great king as a price of Persian help. Athens had won her power as a champion of the eastern Greeks. Sparta had secured her primacy by betraying them. In the second place, the method of the two states in exercising their power were totally different. The grievances against Athens, though real, were mainly of a sentimental nature. The worst Athens had done was to deprive some confederate cities of autonomy. There were no complaints of tyranny, rapine, 
or oppression. But under the Lacedaemonian supremacy, men suffered from positive acts of injustice and violence, and might seek in vain at Sparta for redress. The spirit of the system which Lysander instituted may be judged from the statement that the will of any Spartan citizen was regarded as law in the subject states. The statement comes from a friend of Lacedaemon. The position of power which Lysander had attained in the eyes of the world and enjoyed without moderation could not fail to excite jealousy and apprehension at Sparta itself. He held a sort of royal court at Samos, and the Samians accorded him divine honors by calling after his name a feast which had hitherto been a feast of Hera. He was recalled to Sparta, and he obeyed the summons, bearing a letter from the satrap Phanabazus to justify him. But when it was opened, instead of being an encomium, it was found to be a deed of accusation, and Lysander was covered with ridicule as the victim of a Persian trick. He was permitted to escape from the situation on the plea of visiting the temple of Zeus Ammon in the Libyan oasis in accordance with a vow. But his work remained. Lacedaemon upheld her uncongenial military despotism, modifying Lysander's system only so far as not to insist on the maintenance of the Decartes, but to permit the cities to substitute other forms of government under the aegis of the Harmoks. Financially, the empire was so constituted as to secure an income of a thousand talents to meet the expenses of Sparta in maintaining her system. The receipt of such an income was a political innovation, and its administration involved money transactions of a nature and on a scale which would have been severely condemned by Lysurgus. The admission into the treasury of a large sum of gold and silver, which had been brought to Sparta by Lysander, was a distinct breach of the Lysurgian discipline. Thus inflexible as the Spartan system was, the necessities of empire compelled it to yield at one point, and a point where attack is wont to be especially insidious. The supremacy of Sparta lasted for a generation, though with intervals in which it was not effective, and its history for more than half of the period is mainly determined by her relations with Persia. As it had been through Persia that she won her supremacy, so it was through Persia that she lost it, and through Persia that she once more regained it. End of chapter 12, part 1. Recording by Dick Durrett, Manchester, New Hampshire.